こんにちは皆さんビジネスサクセスジャパンのポッドキャストへようこそ Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast This is your host, Lydia Buchelman My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan-specific communication skills, especially in business. While I can't and won't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. So before we get into today's interview, let's quickly go over last episode's Japanese phrase. Osaki ni shitsure shimasu. O. Sa ki ni shi tsu de i shi ma su. Osaki ni shitsure This phrase is commonly used when leaving the office before your co workers. A phrase that those staying behind might say in response is O tsukare sama deshita. O tsuka de sa. Ma de shi ta. Otsukare sama deshita. This phrase doesn't have a great English translation, but a good enough equivalent would be great work today or you worked hard. This is often used when going out for drinks as well, such as at a nomikai or karaoke. Alright, so I'm very excited to share another great interview today. Today's guest is Kimi Sugiyama. She's currently a travel consultant in the States with a ton of interesting side projects such as a podcast, blog, and Instagram that I'll link up in the description of this episode. But without any further delay, let's get into today's conversation. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to bring you another great interview today. Today, I'll be talking with Kimi Sugiyama. And if you don't mind just going ahead and introducing yourself a little bit to my audience. Yes, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here and talking with you today.、Um, but, like she said,、uh, my name is Kimmy,、um, and I am an international travel advisor by trade. But during my downtime, I consider myself to be a foodie and a big bookworm. And I like to dabble in a lot of different creative mediums like writing and cooking and photography and now podcasting. Yeah, awesome. And what is the name of your podcast, just so everybody knows ahead of time? So, my podcast is called Bring Your Own Baggage.、Um, in a sense, essentially, it's just having kind of in depth, deep conversations with people that I know or experts on different topics that I'm interested in diving deeper into. Yes, if you're looking for a podcast, definitely check it out. There's a lot of、um, kind of diverse conversations, but they're always really interesting. So, be sure to download that if you get the chance. And as far as your work history, it's a little bit more、um, cross cultural than maybe. What a lot of people are used to. Would you mind explaining it to us? Sure. Yeah. So if you looked at my resume, it's actually、yeah. quite all over the board, but <laughs> I'll give you a kind of a snapshot of the last four or five years or so, as I think that's probably the most relevant.、Um, but I moved to Japan in 2014, where I initially worked as an English teacher for one year in Nagasaki, which is, is in southern Japan. Um, after a year,、um, I moved up to Tokyo because I wanted more variety in the job opportunities and more opportunities to study Japanese more seriously.、Um, so I moved up to Tokyo、um, and I did some freelance writing work and graphic design work to keep myself afloat. And I enrolled myself in a Japanese language school to help accelerate my language abilities. 
and eventually found a job working as a tour guide in Tokyo for overseas visitors. So essentially, I would take people and show them different neighborhoods around Tokyo. And that to date was the best job that I've ever had. Yeah. What was your favorite part about that job? Just getting to share like what you loved the most about the country with other people or was it getting to know the people themselves or what was kind of your like your biggest selling point on that? Right. So I think Tokyo is my favorite city on earth. So to be able to share my enthusiasm and my love for the city with people who have maybe not gotten to explore Tokyo, maybe in depth or were visiting for the first time was just so exciting for me. And it just, it made me excited to get up every day and to go outside and be active and walking around the neighborhoods and showing people um, the things that I love most about it. And just to see their reactions and their excitement about how different things inspired them or caught their eye or their curiosity. It was just a really fun environment to be in all the time. Yeah, that does sound like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, as far as visas, are you a dual citizen then that you were able to kind of pick up those side jobs or what was the visa situation like? Uh, I, no, I was not. I wish I was a dual citizen, but um, I worked for when I was an English teacher, I had a work visa. Mm -hmm. um, and then for a very brief period, I had the, the um, they have like a freelance visa. You have oh. to like report, report like your financials to the government to prove that you're making enough money to sustain living in Japan. Um, and then once I found the job with um, working as a tour guide, I was back on a normal work visa. So okay. it's just a visa life in Japan. Yeah. Trying to figure out the visa can be um, something that people really struggle with, especially if they're learning more freelance or creative. Yeah, um, absolutely. But how did all of that lead into what you do now? I have always been kind of in the travel industry. I guess it kind of started with my love for travel. Um, so before I moved to Japan, I actually spent a year and a half traveling around the world. And so that was kind of the catalyst oh, wow. for my love of travel and wanting to be in the industry. And so when I was in Japan, I worked kind of on the front end being the tour guide. So, you know, we would get these requests and we would just show people around the city. Um, and then now I kind of work on the back end, if that makes sense. Yeah. So now you're based in the States and you're mostly doing Japan type of um, travel or is it other countries too? Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm based here in the States, here in Michigan, and still working in the travel and tourism industry. And now I'm just working to help plan trips for people all over the world, but with a specialty and focus on trips to Japan and Asia specifically. Okay. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So given that you've lived in Japan for such a long time, I know that this is a really hard question, um, yeah. especially since you've seen so much and ex been exposed to so much there. But I guess, what is the one thing that you love or admire the most about Japan? It can be a big thing or a small thing. But. Uh, yeah, I, I could talk about this for yeah. hours on end. <laughs> um, but there, I mean, there are a lot of things that come to mind. But I think the number one thing would be the collective respect that the Japanese have for the environment. Mm. Um, in Japan, it seems like there is an overall understanding that it's not one person's job to keep everything neat and tidy you know like everybody does their own small part to pitch in and keep everything clean which is why you rarely see litter in the streets or mm. trash on the hiking trails and sometimes you might even see people wiping down their own spaces and tables at restaurants so they don't leave a mess behind mm -hmm. um, but I think people in general I think are just pretty good about cleaning up after themselves there and yeah. Um, I think in tandem with that, I really appreciate how everything starts on time. 
I became like really spoiled knowing that I could rely on different events and concerts to start on time and even the trains in Tokyo in particular would leave on time and so those are the two major things that I think that I really appreciate about Japan and miss about Japan. Yeah, you definitely get spoiled by the timeliness and cleanliness. Yeah, absolutely. 100% accurate. Yeah. The difference between people in different countries isn't always like as extreme as people make it out to be, but since everybody kind of comes at um, issues and thinking about big ideas with these different cultural contexts, um, did that cause any difficulties when you were building relationships with coworkers while you were in Japan? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think for me, it was a big learning process, but I, in the end, I found it to be very similar to building relationships with anyone anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, building relationships in terms of coworkers specifically was done, you know, little by little, just laying one brick at a time like you would a house. So um, we never had any of the, you know, drinking parties that you hear about um, in Japan. We never had those as a team, which mm-hmm. now looking back, I wish that we did because I think we would have gotten to know each other a lot better and a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but much of the relationship building kind of came from, for example, like the first two weeks I was training to be a tour guide. I went on each of the different tours that we offered and I got to observe each guide's different style, their wealth of information and their personality. So that short period was kind of like an accelerated first impression of each person I worked with. And then over time, especially during our slow seasons, we would, you know, do brainstorming sessions together for new tours. So we would go out walking around different neighborhoods in Tokyo, scouting for interesting places to take our clients. And it became easier to identify the staff who were like the gener- the idea generators and like the ones who thought more logically, like the organizers, et cetera. And as I learned like these different things about each person, I used that to try and relate to them and collaborate better. And so I think that's kind of like a common strain that you find I think anywhere like in any work environment Um, and then you have like typical things like sometimes in between tours we would um, grab a bite to eat together if some of us were in the same neighborhood Um, and I feel like just in general a lot of relationship building in Japan is done at the table with food and drinks (laughs) (laughs) the best way to build relationships for sure yeah absolutely and you know you you build it through small gestures like remembering important dates or experiences like birthdays and giving them a small gift of or something to show your appreciation and you know little things like showing up on time doing what's asked of you good communication like all of those different things kind of go into play when you're building relationships with them there yeah to me when I was in Japan it just seemed to like People added a lot more weight to small things. So just being mindful about that um, can make a big difference over time. Yeah. You don't expect things to happen quickly with a lot of things, including relationships, just be willing to take your time. Yeah. It's all kind of in the small details. They really take their time building, you know, any kind of foundation, any relationship. Yeah. So then kind of this slow, uh, methodical getting to know your coworkers, building relationships with your coworkers. How did your interactions with those coworkers differ from how you would try to create a relationship with your clients and vendors? So I think for me, uh, this was a unique situation because I feel like I had a 
I had developed a deeper relationship with the staff who ran like the restaurants and the hotels just because I saw them almost every day. Whereas like the staff itself, like we didn't have a central office. Everybody had their own places that they lived and like we would only maybe see each other like once or twice a month. Mm. Um, so, but because I was seeing the, like the restaurant and hotel staff all the time, um, it just became a lot easier to get to know them better. Um, and there's, I think, let me see, there's like a kind of like a delicate balance um, to maintain like with these people because you, because you do see them every day and because you're bringing through a group of uh, overseas visitors, you kind of have to play like the mediator a little bit, like not only the translator, but mm-hmm. you almost have to apologize like if any if anybody kind of gets too rowdy I know that I've been in that position a couple of times myself like there were restaurant staff that asked us like not to come back for a little while just because like groups they thought that we brought through were a little bit too loud or uh, rambunctious and so that was something I had to be very mindful of Um, and it was just a matter of going back and apologizing and acknowledging that you're working with different cultural customs and when they see that you're willing to put in the effort and that you understand your mistakes and they're willing to forgive you a little bit easier, I feel like. Um, but that's something that I had to keep in mind is that your reputation is also at stake. You know, you're not just representing yourself or your company. You're also representing the people, your clients that you're taking through. Um, so that's something that I had to be, to be very mindful of. Yeah. So then to them, were you kind of responsible for um, the behavior of the people you were giving tours to? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That can be very difficult, especially if it involves um, drinking. It can get a little out of hand really quickly. Yeah. Most of them were were pretty understanding. There was only like maybe like a handful of few maybe that were, you know, cranky OG sons, like older men. (laughs) Um, But most of them were, were pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like people were really doing their best to be accommodating, um, yes. which is amazing and something that definitely makes Japan a very special place to visit. Um, so did the idea of in-group and out-group dynamics ever come into play? Like, did you have to um, treat your vendors any differently than you would have if they had been kind of in the same company as you? Did that look any different since you were in Japan? I know that in the States, we don't treat people exactly the same either. But I know that the in-group, out-group dynamics can be kind of a little bit more strong in Japan. Yeah, so definitely within our small staff, we could speak more casually with each other and speak more openly about any problems that we were encountering. And we didn't have to use um, Kago, like polite language, uh, or anything like that. It was very, you know, kind of get in the trenches together and figure stuff out. Whereas the restaurant staff and hotel hotel staff and all of those people, you kind of have to take better care of them and um, like spoil them a little bit, you know, and it's, you have to maintain like a really high level of politeness, even though you do get to know them really well, doesn't mean you can let your, your guard down. Um, so there is that distinction there, I think. Yeah, thank you. Um, so then how did your identity impact your work experience in Japan? You have a little bit more of an international background related to both Japan and the States. So did that have any effect on maybe how you were perceived in Japan or how you were perceived back home? Yeah, I I definitely thought going into Japan that I would have it a lot worse because I read all of these things online about how, um, 
you know, American expats in particular, or people who are half Japanese and half something else will have a harder go of it just because that, they don't know, like, I guess they think that if they're, if you're going to go over there to work that you, they, you should know like all the different business customs and things like that. Um, but I feel like in Japan, because I look Japanese and I have a Japanese name with kanji and everything, I had a much easier time kind of sinking into the fabric of society than I think some other expats might have. Um, usually upon my first interactions, I could see like some Japanese tense up a little bit because I think to them, I looked racially ambiguous. Like they couldn't tell whether or not I was Japanese until I started speaking the language then they would relax a little bit. And I think once I got past that point, they kind of just accepted me like as Japanese, like it didn't really cross their minds that like I was Japanese American, even though I am, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, and then among my coworkers specifically with tour guiding, I never felt excluded. I felt like I could blend in and I always felt welcome and invited. Like I never felt like they treated me differently just because I was Japanese American or, you know, just from a different country with, you know, a little experience working in Japan. So I think that was the gift um, with working in Japan. In the States, um, my identity is never something that crossed my mind mm -hmm. when I was at work, like growing up. Um, I was always just like Kimmy, like I never really thought that I was, you know, Japanese. I was never American. I was just who I was. It was never central um, to my identity. But now I'm super like hyper aware that I'm one of the few Asians in my workplace. And so if I ever feel like I'm like something if I'm being treated unfairly like I always jump to like oh it's because I'm Asian isn't it but it's not like it's never been validated like that but that's mm. always the, the conclusion that I jump to um, and I'm still trying to work out how I feel about that um, but I don't know that I've ever been denied a job because of my race um, but again but I, I can't be sure so that's not something I can really measure um, but here I don't feel excluded either really in my workplace um, but now that I'm in my 30s, I definitely feel like I have to be more vigilant and standing up for myself if I feel like I'm justified and, you know, like feeling like I'm being treated unfairly. Yeah, I guess part of that just comes with growing up. Yeah. But yeah, it's hard not knowing, are people just treating me this way because of who they are or because of who they think I am? It gets a little bit hairy when you're not quite sure. Yeah, and it's something like those are conversations that I'm only at the beginning of learning how to navigate. So it'll mm -hmm. be an interesting journey. Yeah. So then when it came to business, what did you appreciate the most about how the Japanese did it? Um, I think my my friend who lives in Tokyo, we still talk every week, and this is something we just talked about last week. And one of the things I really admired is that in Japan you can't really be fired. I'm sure there are, you know, accentuating circumstances to everything, but it's almost like in order to leave a job, you have to be the one that quits. Like your employer, your manager will not be the one who lets you go. Um, and so I, that kind of job security, I admire. Um, and then I think just working together as a whole unit, there's a real sense of unity in the workplace, I feel like. and I think you see that like when you leave for work for any amount of time, whether it's for a maternity leave or for a vacation, everybody on your team feels the strain of having one less person in the office. 
Whereas in the States, I think sometimes, depending on the industry, we can feel a little bit expendable. Like we can just easily be replaced by the next person. Um, and so I think that's something that's becoming apparent to uh, expats that are working in Japan now, especially with this pandemic, is that they have not seen quite the impact with jobs being laid off or furloughed as we have here. So I think I really admire that about the Japanese workplace. But in the States, I do like that a lot of companies offer you know, creative freedom and the ability to give your own opinion without penalty and like to make you feel valued. Um, and we had kind of touched on this before as well um, and how quickly we are able to make decisions um, in a company setting, whereas Japan is, tends to be a little bit slower and more cautious. Yeah, definitely. Going back to what you said about not being fired or not being furloughed, not being laid off. It's interesting because um, lately I've been reading articles in Japanese about how people are losing their jobs, but every time they talk about people losing their jobs, they don't use the verb for firing. It's always to be made to quit. Yeah. So that's yep. even just the way they view losing your job is just completely different. Like you aren't cut off from your company. Your company encourages you to leave yourself. So that right. was very interesting to me. Yeah. I heard a lot of stories when I was working over in Japan that sometimes like if if your manager wants to fire you, like they're not going to do it, but they will kind of make your work life a bit more miserable so that you'll <laughs> feel forced to quit, you know? So that's, I guess, their way of firing people. Personally, I'd rather just be fired than have somebody <laughs> try to make my life miserable. But right. and yeah, just the job security definitely seems like a very attractive aspect of working in Japan. Yeah. So did you ever have an experience like a specific experience where just because of culture, you were talking to somebody, you were doing something with someone else and you just were completely on different pages. So I, I don't have any stories about kind of like a communication breakdown due to culture specifically. Um, but I do have a handful of stories about misunderstandings when my language was still limited, if you're interested in those. Oh, yes. Stories. I'm always interested so the, in that because I have plenty of those myself. So. <laughs> yeah, would love to hear some of yours as well. But um, my most prominent one um, that has even shocked my Japanese friends, but I, when I was initially setting up my life in Tokyo, I was setting up a new bank account um, with one of the uh, top financial institutions. I won't name them, but um, I went in and I had to sign like all this paperwork and everything. I had to get my ID card and my debit card and all of this stuff. And I was talking to the woman um, in Japanese, like I wasn't using English at all, um, but she could definitely tell that I was a foreigner. Mm -hmm. um, and in Japanese, she essentially told me that I was not allowed to open a bank account with their institution unless I could speak like fluent, like native Japanese. Um, and so that really kind of threw me for a loop because I was talking to her in Japanese. So yeah. I don't know what would have, you know, given her any signal that I wasn't fluent. Um, and I had never had that experience before in Japan. So that really kind of threw me off. And I was like, wow, like, people, this, like these kind of experiences actually do exist <laughs> in, in Japan. So that was definitely the most difficult and eye-opening one for me. Yeah. 
That's really interesting. They couldn't yeah. blame it on like, oh, we can't process your name because it's too long. Like, no, it was literally in right. kanji. So there was yeah. no good excuse. I know. Wow. And I had like, I had the hanko and everything. Hanko yeah. is the like little name stamp that you use to like in a place of a signature. And I was like, yeah. oh, I felt so prepared. And yet, no, couldn't yeah. do it. But yeah. Yeah. I had to get a random hanko myself, but not the same effect because it had nothing to do with my name. I just needed it. To sign <laughs> right. <laughs> so if you had, if you knew that somebody was getting off of a plane to Japan and they didn't know anything about Japanese culture, especially Japanese business culture, and they're expecting to just get off the plane and do mm-hmm. super well in business. What's one thing that they should be aware of or know before doing that? I think the one thing that I have told friends that have gone over either just for leisure or business is that the more of an effort that you make to meet them halfway by demonstrating that you understand some of their culture, like even though they don't expect you to, it can go a really long way. Like bringing like a small souvenir from your home country to show a small token of your appreciation. Um, if you're doing business, definitely wearing a nice suit, making sure like your hair isn't like frazzled um, and frizzy, like using some like basic Japanese phrases um, and knowing how to exchange business cards, which I know um, Kasha uh, talked to you about mm-hmm. um, on a previous episode. Um, all of that can really give you a leg up um, in doing business. And for business travelers specifically, um, there is a wonderful book called Japan's Cultural Code. Uh, cultural code words. Um, and I'm going to butcher this author's name, so I apologize in advance, but I believe it's Boy Lafayette de Mente, um, that he goes through all of these intricacies of the business cultural customs and the Japanese mindset, like when it comes to meetings and negotiations and like so much more. And even though I personally was not working in a corporate setting, like this book was a true aid in helping me at least better understand the working world in Japan. So if you're going to Japan for business, I definitely like recommend either reading it before you go or taking it with you when you go. Yeah. So I know from the classes that I've taught that trying to explain to my students that it's just really important to put in small amounts of effort to do things to show that they have taken the time to study, that they've taken the time to practice, they still find themselves getting super overwhelmed because of all the small details that they feel like they have to do. Like, oh, when do I bow? When do I uh, hand my card? Which hand? If I do it wrong, am I going to offend the other person and will never talk to me again? So (laughs) do you have any advice for coping with that anxiety surrounding like learning all this stuff? But balancing that with you don't have to be perfect, like learning as much as you can, but not obsessing over perfectionism. Yeah. So I think just like just learning basics, like don't overwhelm yourself with learning how to do everything perfectly. Like when you walk into a room, it's like if you just like bow once you I mean, they already know it's already demonstrating to them that, you know, something it's like you don't have to do everything that your Japanese counterparts do. Um, And it's just kind of maybe prepping yourself a little bit before you go but then when you're in the situation itself watching and observing how the people around you interact can be uh, I think the biggest teacher 
Um, so, and they, like I said, the Japanese don't expect you to know everything, like all the intricacies of the way that they do business. Um, but just showing just a small little example of like, even just having a business card, maybe even like trying to print your name in Japanese, like, you know, bowing once or twice. I think that's enough of a stepping stone to like in the right, in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's just a little bit, I've just had that several times with my students and trying to explain to them like, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to put in the effort to um, just be better. Just do the best that you can to um, show the other person that you care, that you respect them and their culture. And that just makes all the difference in the world when it comes to building relationships. Yeah. And I, I always used to joke because I had heard this um, on a Japanese news website many years ago that if you know how to um, say thank you and all the different ways to apologize in Japanese. You're pretty much fluent in Japanese. So, if <laughs> so if you if you feel like you um, have created some kind of faux pas or made a mistake, you know, as long as you can say like, "Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry," I feel like that's a pretty good comeback. Yes, sorry is actually kind of another point of um, confusion for my students. The word for sorry is sumimasen, and to us, it definitely seems like they say sorry when there's literally no reason to be sorry. Right. Do you have um, any kind of like rules of thumb for when people, when it's appropriate for people to be apologizing versus not? Just because I know that it's very confusing to my students, at least going into a situation, having the other person apologize repeatedly throughout the course of their relationship and kind of not understanding when it's expected for them to do the same. Right. So I guess I guess it depends on the situation that you're in, whether it's just something as simple as being on a crowded train or if you're in um, a business setting. I almost think of it like this. Like when I came back to the States, um, it really rubbed me the wrong way when like um, like somebody like if I would say thank you and then the other person would say you're welcome. I cause to me, when somebody says thank you, I'll say no worries or I'll say, oh, no, thank you like it's kind of like an equal thank you so i think of it like that so like let's say you're on a busy train and somebody says um says something to you or like bumps into you accidentally and they say ah oh, like excuse me like i'm sorry um it's almost like i would say the same thing because it's like even though they were the one to bump into me like i, I it's all, i'm also at fault for standing in their way even <laughs> if that makes any sense um i know that we wouldn't do that normally here in the us but i think that's more common um, in Japan. Um, but I think kind of Sumimasen has many different variations. So it's not just, mm -hmm. you know, excuse me, it's also thank you and uh, many other different translations. So I think it's just one of those common words that you can use like offhand when you don't know what else to say. Yes. Um, when in doubt, you could say Sumimasen and like the odds are it's a somewhat appropriate thing to say. It is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can rarely go wrong saying Sumimasen. It's very true. <laughs> so when it comes to language, in your experience, does it seem like it's better for people to try to become conversational or is it more worth their time to just kind of focus on learning set phrases in business? Um, in business, in business, if... You're only going to be there for a couple of weeks, I would say, just to learn the basic phrases. Um, if you are planning to be there for like a two to three year period, I would say to start learning um, not phrases, but just general 
conversation, conversational Japanese um, to use that as your foundation. And then once you're in Japan, you can use that immersion to accelerate your language learning. That was the case for me. I, I went into Japan with very little of the language and being in it all the time um, definitely helped me learn a lot quicker. Yeah. And did you end up taking the JLPT or anything, the language, like the Japanese language proficiency tests? I did. So I took, um, so for anybody that's not familiar with the JLPT, there's five different levels. So like the level five is the easiest one and level one is the hardest. Um, so I did level three uh, while I was there and passed that. And I have a goal of passing N1, hopefully by December of next year, if they don't open things up again by the end of the year. But um, so that's the goal. Yeah, that's awesome. It's definitely a huge jump, like five and four, not a big deal. Four and three, it's a little bit more intense, but yeah. three to two and yeah. then two to one is huge. worlds yeah. apart. It's a huge jump. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I had tried to take um, N2 like shortly before I had left Japan. And I would say I went into it not like completely as prepared as I could have been. And on the day I woke up with like uh, the start of a cold, like I just felt oh, really awful. And I went to the test anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I like, I knew that I wasn't going to pass, but I wanted to know like what the difference was between N3 and N2. And like you said, there is very much a jump between the two. So it's quite a hurdle to get yeah. through. Yeah. Yeah. Did you try taking it again after that or you're just going to go straight to N1 now? I think I'm just going to go straight to N1. Yeah. 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 Go for the top. Yeah. Go big or go home, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the virus situation becomes somewhat more manageable by then. But yeah. Not much we so. can do about it. Yeah. So if an American comes to Japan, wants a job, is the JLP in your, I know that you weren't working in a corporate setting, but maybe from your friends or just from what you've seen, how important is it to have that language certification? if at all? Um, yeah, again, I think this depends on the industry that you're in. Like if you're working in, um, you know, engineering, real estate, any of like the big businesses, they definitely want to see that you have that language certification because they need some kind of assurance that you're going to be able to not only communicate with staff, but like their clients and vendors and all of that. And they don't want to have that worry on their back. So I definitely think having that will help ease any of that stress on their part. Um, otherwise, I think the JLPT, at least for me personally speaking, has just become a measure of my own like reading and writing abilities more so than for anybody else. Um, but I think if you're serious about working in Japan um, in a corporate setting, then I think it's definitely one of the things that it's good to have in your toolbox. Right. And it does primarily focus on your reading and writing skills. There's also listening incorporated, but yeah, um, it's, it's not the be all end all when it comes to language skills, because obviously um, it's a lot more difficult to test your speaking abilities. So some people are very good at communicating, but aren't necessarily great in a test setting. So just being aware of that going in, it's testing a very specific set of skills. Right. And I would also, if you're going to go over there to live and work, I, I would also be mindful uh, of that because it's easy to up your reading skills in particular just because it's Japanese is obviously everywhere around you mm -hmm. um, and writing skills you can definitely do like by writing emails and 
um, writing up documents for different things. But speaking can be harder to come by. Like, yes, you get to speak Japanese, like with, um, like in the restaurants and the banks and whatever. But um, in order to, you have to really be diligent about like upping your speaking, like and be proactive about getting better at it. Yeah. And did um, learning Japanese is Japanese the only other language that you're um, fluent in? Yes. Other than English. Yeah, yeah. Japanese yeah. English. Yep. Okay. Did learning Japanese kind of help you understand the culture in a very different way than you would have if you were only communicating in English? Yes. Um, you learn very quickly, I think, the like I think in Japanese, like we have kind of like three different um, politeness levels. So you learn very quickly, like which one is for who, like the, you have like the casual Japanese that you can use with friends. And then you have like standard Japanese and then a much more polite Japanese that you typically use in business. And you kind of learn um, the different words that they describe for different things that we don't have words for um, in English. Um, one of my favorites is um uh, what is it? Kuki o yomere, right? Mm. Or kuki yomere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Reading, like reading the air. Yeah. Um, so that's a big thing in Japan. Is like I think that's a lot of where the learning comes from is being able to um, read somebody's kind of their vibe or like reading the environment around you rather than asking questions. Whereas here in the states, we we learn through asking questions. So there, it's a bit more passive. I feel like so things like that. Um, you you learn um, through the Japanese language for sure. Yeah, it's always been my impression that you can learn them separately, but you learn a lot more about both of them if you learn them together. It's just yes. more, a lot more effective that way if you learn them in conjunction instead of, I'm going to master the language and then master the culture or the other way around. Yeah, uh, It works a lot better if you try to do the two things together, I think. Yeah. Did you find that to be true like as well like when you were learning Japanese? like Was there something specific that you learned through the language about the culture? Um, less about the culture itself because I did it the um, learning language first and then learning about the culture route. So that's why I'm less enamored with compartmentalizing them because it didn't work yeah. so well for me. Right. right. <laughs> it was more um, learning the language. I learned just the difference in thinking about things like the Japanese language just emphasizes things differently than you would do in English and just learning that people just approach things from completely different ways and it's not wrong. It's just different and may have different results, right. but kind of learning to think more flexibly about how people view the world was yeah. a big gain for me in learning Japanese. Yeah. And then after learning about the culture itself, um, I could look at the language and be like, Oh, it uh, suddenly yeah. makes a lot more sense. <laughs> right. It makes so much more sense. <laughs> yeah. So yes, oh, if you can, definitely study them together. Try to at least learn a little bit of both. Right. <laughs> All right. So if you want to hear more from Kimi, she has a blog. She has an Instagram with a bunch of awesome photography that is definitely almost therapeutic to look at right now since everybody's enjoying social <laughs> isolation. So you should definitely check that out. Uh, we also mentioned her podcast earlier. I'll put the link to that in the description of this episode as well. And on her website, she also talks a lot about her consulting services, which includes logistics for trip planning your own trip. She can also help you plan your trip either um, just for leisure or if you're going over on business. 
She also offers some cultural consulting so that you can kind of get in the Japanese mindset or kind of understand what you'll be encountering when you're in Japan. Just a little bit of prep before then. And then if you work through her, you can also get some support over the phone, through email, just while you're on the trip, having somebody to reach out to at any time is definitely a relief. And she also offers individual or group tours, which I would almost be tempted to take just to hang out with her in Japan. So <laughs> definitely check that out as well. And before we head out for today, is there anything else you would like to say to my audience? Uh, just thank you so much. Um, and if you do go to Japan, I hope you have the time of your life. It's a beautiful country. Um, and just while you're there, soak up as much as you can. So just do whatever you can to get the most out of your time there and learn a lot, be curious, and enjoy your time in Japan. Thank you so much, Kimi. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. This was so much fun. Bye. Stay Bye. safe. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Kimi in this episode. Relationships, culture, and language are all complex but important aspects of being successful in Japan. Hopefully you learned a lot from hearing about Kimi's own experiences and that you're excited to learn even more about Japan. Be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode if you want to learn more about Kimi, her insights into Japan, and all of the awesome projects she's working on. But in the meantime, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. So if you found the information here today useful, please subscribe for more Japanese culture and language guidance. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to hear more content in the future, please consider leaving a review. It really helps other people find the show. And of course, if you have any other questions, comments, suggestions for future episodes or interview topics, please email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com. Until next time, mata kondo!